Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is one out of Missoula, Montana. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Ann Stout grew up in California, and before it was the cool thing to do when there were TV shows about it, she got pregnant at 16. Ann and her baby daddy's relationship didn't work out, as few high school relationships do, but that didn't stop Ann from trying to be the best mom that she could, and honestly, she took to motherhood pretty easily. According to an episode of Scorned Love Kills, Anne got a job working at a local restaurant to provide for her son, Ben. And one day, this guy walks in and there's an instant attraction the second the two lock eyes. His name was Bill. He was a little older and was a third generation sheetrocker and just generally had his shit together. He was a nice guy from a nice family and had a steady job and he didn't care that she had a baby. Ann and Bill quickly became a thing, and before they knew it, they were in love. The two got married and became an instant family. With that, they decided to get away from the busy and sometimes dangerous life in California and find a safer, more family-friendly place to live. So they settled on a big plot of land in Montana. Bill decided that they were going to build their dream house, and that's exactly what he did. They built a quaint little ranch house with a two-car garage that had a stunning view out of the endless glass door windows that lined the back of the house. And I'm talking the kind of view that would make bank if you Airbnb'd it. The house sat on a huge field lined with trees that overlooked mountains that never seemed to end. Anne was this former teen mother who'd been working her ass off at a restaurant trying to make ends meet, and now she was living in this fairy tale dream house built by the man that fate seemed to have plopped into her life. The couple went on to have two more kids, and Anne revolved her entire life around being a mom and a wife. Their day-to-day was simple and what looked on the outside to be relationship goals. Everyone who knew them seemed to think that they had the perfect life and the perfect marriage. And that lasted a good while, until the winter of 2000. Ben, their oldest son, whom Dateline reports Bill had ultimately adopted as his own, had just started his first year of college and the pressure of being in a new place and trying to stay on top of his class was more pressure than he expected. He came home for winter break and one morning the family woke up, but Ben wasn't there. But there was a note. They ran into the woods and found him. Ben had committed suicide. Ben's suicide devastated the Stout family from all angles. The Revali Republic even mentioned that Bill actually blamed Anne for Ben's death, but no one's really ever explained why. Anne grieved Ben outwardly. She wanted to talk about him and keep his name alive, but for Bill, it was too painful. And in that episode of Scorned, it's reported that they became very obviously distant with one another. They started sleeping in separate bedrooms and even started talking about divorce. But they pushed through, they knew they got married for a reason, and they knew that deep down, they still loved each other, and they were going to do whatever it took to get their marriage to work. But it wasn't easy, it wasn't quick, and it came with another significant bump in the road. 
In March of 2005, Bill got a wedding invitation in the mail. It was for a high school friend back in Arkansas. He knew a ton of his old friends would be there, and he frankly just needed a break from life, so he decided to go, but according to that scorned episode, and decided not to go. So Bill hops on a plane and flies halfway across the country, honestly looking forward to some time away. The night before the wedding, he's sitting by himself at the hotel bar enjoying the silence until he sees a familiar face. It's Barbara Miller, his high school sweetheart. She too was there for the wedding. They start talking and it's like no time has passed and nothing has changed. The more they drink, the more comfortable they get and the more honest Bill gets. He starts confiding in Barbara about everything that's happened in the last five years, from Ben's suicide to the strain on his and Anne's marriage, and it feels good to have someone to talk to about all this, and it doesn't hurt that those old feelings still seem to be there. Bill and Barbara talk until the bar shuts down for the night, and instead of parting ways, Bill invites her back up to his room, and you can guess what happens next. It's sex. The following day, the two actually attend the wedding together, sitting next to one another and dancing with each other at the reception. In that episode of Scorned, Barbara says that they were like a new couple and an old married couple all at the same time. They were head over heels infatuated, but also felt like they were best friends who'd known each other their entire lives. And everyone around them noticed. Everyone noted how genuinely happy Bill looked. Bill and Barbara spent that night together too, and in that moment, Bill decided that he wasn't going to lose Barbara for a second time. He was going to leave Anne, Barbara was going to move up to Montana, and they were going to start a new life together. Bill had to leave to head back home the next morning, but the two made plans to keep in touch, and they did for a while. In fact, after getting home, Bill actually made plans to fly her up to Montana and go on a little mini vacation with her. He booked her a flight and everything. But that all came crashing down a few days later when a document on Legal.com reports that Anne came inside claiming that she'd just gotten a phone call from a woman she didn't know, telling her that he and Barbara had slept together while he was at the wedding in Arkansas. Bill didn't deny anything. He confessed that he had, in fact, cheated on her, but at the prospect of losing his family, he told Anne that it meant nothing and that he would stop talking to Barbara and do whatever it took to earn back her trust and be the man that she deserved. And true to his word, he canceled that flight he'd booked for Barbara, sent her an email saying he couldn't see her anymore, and furthermore, that they could never talk again. That was it for Bill. He made a clean cut from the affair and never looked back. But it didn't look like it was going to be so clean for Barbara. Soon after Bill cut things off with Barbara, he started getting emails from an account called Freak of Ark. Ark spelled like you would spell Arkansas. And the emails were signed at the bottom by Barbara Miller. It seemed odd that she'd refer to herself as the Freak of Arkansas, but nothing about these emails sounded especially stable. The email started in May of 2005 and came pretty regularly until June of 2006. Here are some of the subject lines as shown in the Missoula episode of Sins and Secrets. Thank you for the call. I was missing you too. Which is odd because it was written to Bill, but Bill knew he hadn't called her, so Barbara certainly knew that as well. I'm sorry I didn't call you back. I still love you. 
Again, strange, since Bill and Barbara both knew that Bill wasn't calling her. And this sounds like something you'd say, you know, in a follow-up phone call or even in a voicemail, but it was emailed to him. Anne's having an affair, I found out. Okay, so now it looks like Barbara's trying to get Bill to leave Anne on the premise of Anne having an affair. Stuff about Anne you didn't know. Important. So the affair email didn't work, and Barbara is now trying to show him some new information she assumes that he doesn't know about the woman he's built an entire life with. I got tickets to Missoula, and I'm coming August 12th. So she's planning to cross the boundaries of the internet now and bring this thing into his whole-ass home life. She follows that email up with one asking if he plans to pick her up from the airport because Missoula doesn't have any cabs. Bill never responded to a single one of these emails, and with every one that came in, Anne got more and more upset, thinking that maybe Bill was entertaining this and she just didn't know about it. Barbara continues emailing him about her upcoming trip to Missoula, including the hotel she has booked and the confirmation receipt. She is committed, and Anne's wondering what in the free hell she's going to do when her husband's mistress shows up at their doorstep because Bill had absolutely no intention of actually meeting up with Barbara. It seemed like no matter how hard Bill tried to prove to Anne that he wasn't interested in Barbara, that he wasn't in any kind of communication with her, these emails would always make Anne question him, and I honestly think anyone can see why. When the emails about coming to Montana weren't causing enough strife in the marriage, Barbara seemed to up the ante and sent an email to Bill claiming she was pregnant, sick, and in danger of losing the baby, and that he needed to call her before she did. In fact, her pregnancy revelation actually came in an email to Anne, not Bill, which is strange because no one could figure out how Barbara, Bill's long-lost high school love all the way in Arkansas, could have gotten Anne's email address, let alone the email addresses of Bill and Anne's friends and their own children. Yes, these emails were also being sent to Bill's sons, something Legal.com notes as being a huge source of incessant shame and embarrassment for Bill. He knew he'd fucked up and he wanted to make it right for his family, but it seemed like Barbara just wouldn't let that happen and wanted to make sure that not only his wife knew what he'd done, but his friends and his sons as well. Which begs the question, why would she be doing this if her end goal was to win him back? Some of the emails from Barbara to Anne, as seen on Sins and Secrets, were titled, From Your New Family. They also included a list of Bill and Barbara's alleged plans for their August rendezvous, had one saying that Barbara and Bill deserved each other forever, and one that really put the family on edge. It said, Anne, mom's coming to Montana, so grow up before you get kicked to the curb. Barbara was telling her that she was going to be the boy's new mom. Between these emails, letters were also being sent to Bill and Ann's house. They rambled on about Bill and Barbara's proposed future together and how they were going to raise the boys and become a new family. 
And if the emails and letters weren't enough, legal reports that the family was also getting an influx of hang-up phone calls during the day. They only assumed that those two were from Barbara. The Stouts felt like they were being attacked from all sides. According to Scorned, Bill, not knowing what else to do, actually wound up deleting his entire email account in a last-ditch effort to get the emails to stop. And it worked. Bill didn't get any more emails. But he also didn't get any more of those letters either. I mean, their address hadn't changed, but whatever. Maybe Barbara had just finally gotten the hint and was backing off. While this whole debacle had put a legitimate strain on Bill's efforts to save his marriage in the beginning, by the end, it almost seemed like it brought him and Anne closer together. They were able to bond over a common enemy, and by the following year, they seemed better than ever. Barbara was just some crazy piece of their past, or so they thought. According to that document on Legal.com, in May of 2007, Bill goes out to his truck one morning only to find that not only has someone egged it, but there is literal shit smeared across his windshield. And immediately, they think Barbara's back. I mean, they hadn't heard much of her in the last year, but now, out of the blue, they think she's upped her crazy ante and flown all the way to Missoula to throw some eggs at his truck and drop a little shit on it. They fear that she's in the area and trying to send a message, and the entire family is on edge. Bill owned one single gun, a small 9mm pistol that he kept in a lockbox in his bedroom closet, and he decides that he's going to start keeping it with him just in case Barbara's lost her damn mind and levels up from eggs and shit to who knows what else. But when he goes to the bedroom closet and unlocks the lockbox, it's empty. There's no gun in there, and according to that document on Legal.com, not only is there no gun, there's also no holster, and he's missing a box of ammunition. Their natural assumption was that Barbara must have stolen it. I'm not entirely sure how they got from egging and shitting the truck to breaking and entering unseen, knowing where he hides his lockbox, let alone the key for it, and stealing the gun from the house without anyone knowing, but that's where their minds went. Nonetheless, on May 31st, Scorn reports that Bill headed down to the police station to report the gun stolen. He told police all about the affair and the emails that followed, the egging and the pooping of his truck, and the police asked him one very specific question. Are you sure Barbara did this? And his answer, surprisingly enough, is no. Something inside of him was telling him that there might be another explanation, even though he didn't know exactly that was. So in the end, he wound up not filing an official report on it. The family carries on cautiously, worried that Barbara might still be in town and that maybe, just maybe, she's armed with Bill's pistol, but they can't live their life in total fear, so they do their best to move away from that looming fear a little every day. On Friday, June 10th, 2007, Bill went to work as usual and, according to Scorn, got home sometime between 7 and 8 p.m. Anne, being Betty Homemaker, made some steak and broccoli for Bill and one of their teenage sons, and then their son went out to hang out with some of his friends. Bill and Anne hung out for a little while before heading to their bedroom and, you know, having the sex. Bill falls asleep, but Anne decides to stay up and wait for their son to get back, which winds up being a little after midnight. 
The next morning, the Rivali Republic reports that both Anne and her teenage son woke up at the crack acid dawn to get some breakfast and go shopping. And I'm talking out of the house before 8.30 a.m. on a Saturday kind of crack of dawn. Bill stays home, though, because according to Anne, he wasn't feeling good. Legal.com reports that Bill had actually made plans to go horseback riding with a friend that afternoon, but Anne made sure to let them know that he wouldn't be able to make it. Anne called Bill a few times throughout the day, but he doesn't answer. She left a few voicemails that can be heard on the Dateline episode, The Box, about what stores they'd been to and that they were going to hit Costco last and wanted to know if he needed anything. Bill never responded. Anne and her son got home around 4.30 that afternoon and started unloading everything, but Bill never came out of the room to help, so Anne went back there to check on him. This is when Anne made a panicked 911 call. When the operator answered, Anne told them that there was something wrong with her husband, that there was blood, his eyes were bruised, and he was cold. Police rush to the scene and find Bill dead from a gunshot wound to the left side of his head, the bullet still inside the pillow he was laying on, and the Rivali Republic reporting that the shell casing was still lying on the bed. Oddly enough, Legal.com reports that police also found a shell casing in the yard. Just from looking at him and hearing Anne's story for the day, they assume that Bill had been shot sometime between 8 a.m. when her and her son left the house and 4.30 p.m. when they got back. And honestly, their first thought, according to pretty much every outlet that has ever covered this case, was that Bill had committed suicide. But they looked all over the bedroom and there was no gun. You can't hide your own gun after you commit suicide. On top of that, that document on legal says that Bill's hands tested negative for gunshot residue, something that would have been left behind had he shot himself. So suicide is out and homicide is in. According to Dateline, it was apparent that Bill's body had been moved after being dead for some time. There was blood spatter on the sheets that covered his body, but there was a comforter on top of it that did not. You can't hide a gun, move your body, or pull a comforter up if you're dead. The police looked around for any signs of forced entry, but there were none. Anne and her son were taken to the station to tell police about their movements throughout the day, and it all checked out. Receipts and CCTV footage, which can be seen on Sins and Secrets, corroborated that they were, in fact, in all of the places they said they were at those exact times. So the police ask Anne if Bill has any enemies, and IMDb reports that she could only think of one. Barbara Miller. She told them all about the emails, the letters, the calls, the eggings, the poop, and the missing handgun, and police start to wonder, could that missing handgun be the gun that was used to kill Bill? The police got to work processing the house and trying to track down Barbara, and the Barbara part wasn't hard. She was found, of all places, at her house in Arkansas. Police showed up at her doorstep, ready to come face-to-face with who they believed had been stalking and harassing Bill and his family for years. But when they opened the door, she seemed really surprised as to why they were there. And maybe this was just her playing innocent and playing it really well, but she let the officers in. They told her they were there investigating a homicide, Bill's homicide. But she didn't even know he was dead. Once she got past what legitimately seemed like shock, she wondered why police were at her house about it, and they told her it was because of the emails, the letters, and the phone calls, which again, she seemed to have no knowledge of. 
She told Scorn that she'd emailed him one or two times after he cut things off with her to work on his marriage, wants to tell them that she'd reversed the cancellation on the flight he'd momentarily booked for their Memorial Day getaway, and another to let him know that even though she'd reversed the cancellation, she wasn't going to use it. And that was it, which was a far cry from what Anne had showed police. Barbara read all these emails about her alleged pregnancy, August hotel rooms, and kicking Anne to the curb, and told police that none of them had come from her, not any of them. I mean, why would she create a new email address, seemingly insulting herself by going by the username Freak of Arc, yet still sign her name at the bottom just to harass the man she knew the phone number of and had previously emailed from her actual email account? Authorities asked her if she'd be willing to take a lie detector test and give them access to her computer, and she politely declined, which didn't help her credibility in anyone's eyes, but she knew her rights, and they were already seemingly accusing her of years worth of shit that she claimed she knew nothing about. So, they asked her where she was between 8.30 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. on June 10th, and she was happy to tell them. She was out shopping in Arkansas, and police were able to prove it. There she was on CCTV, and they knew there was no way she could have been shopping in Arkansas and killing Bill in Montana at the same time. So Barbara was out. But if Barbara didn't kill Bill, and she hadn't sent all of those emails and letters, what the fuck was going on? While police were clearing Barbara, other officers were simultaneously searching the Stout House high and low, looking for any evidence that might lead them to who could have killed Bill, and they found something. Well, they found a few somethings. Buried beneath some of Anne's clothes, they found a single latex glove. Alongside of it was the empty holster of Bill's missing pistol. The thing about this hamper was that it wasn't full of dirty clothes waiting to be washed. According to Legal.com, it was a hamper full of washed clothes waiting to be dried that reportedly smelled a lot like bleach. They tested the glove for gunshot residue and it came back positive. They bagged it as evidence and sent it off for DNA testing, hoping that maybe the killer's DNA would be on the inside of the glove. They kept searching the house and made their way into the garage. This search team was thorough as fuck because while in the garage, they look in the saddle bag of Bill's motorcycle and inside they find a 9mm handgun wrapped in what the Rivali Republic reports is a towel and it had one bullet still in the chamber. It was Bill's missing handgun. Police sent that off for testing as well. They wanted to see if the ballistics matched the exact gun that fired the bullet that killed Bill, and to see if there were any fingerprints or DNA on it. None of this was making any sense to investigators. They knew Ann and Ben were exactly where they said they were between 8.30 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. on June 10th, so they seemed to be in the clear. And they knew Barbara was in Arkansas on June 10th, so she couldn't have done it. So who did? And how did they break in weeks before his death, find the key to his lockbox, find the lockbox itself, steal his gun, then break in again, leave no signs of forced entry, and shoot Bill in his own bed? 
And if Bill's own gun was used to kill him, why would they leave the gun itself and its holster in different parts of his own house? Why wouldn't they have taken it with him? And don't even get me started on the glove. Most murderers try to hide their evidence, not play hide-and-seek with it. And you might think that the missing ammo would still leave some questions up in the air, but police actually wound up finding that too. Ironically, it was sitting right on top of his lockbox. It was almost like someone was trying to frame Bill for his own murder. Putting the gun back into his own saddlebag, putting the ammunition right on top of where they'd gotten it from, this was either the dumbest killer ever or the smartest. And it turns out we're leaning towards the dumbest and also one of the most methodical, thought out and meticulous murders I have ever covered. While police were tracking down Barbara and processing the house, the medical examiner was performing Bill's autopsy and his stomach contents changed the entire course of this investigation. That steak and broccoli that Anne had made for them the night before was still in his stomach. It had hardly digested at all. When you die, every process in your body stops, including digestion, which we've covered in a few other cases. If Bill had gone to sleep that night and woken up the next morning to tell Anne he wasn't feeling good, his dinner from the night before would have been well into his small intestine by now. But it wasn't. Bill hadn't died between 8.30 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. According to Sins and Secrets, he had died between 11 p.m. and midnight the night before. His state of rigor and liver mortis at the time his body was found also confirmed this. At this point, all eyes are on Anne because they know she lied to them about talking to Bill that morning, which means that she also lied to Bill's friend when she told them that he wasn't feeling good and wouldn't make it horseback riding that day. Based on Bill's time of death, Anne would have woken up to him shot dead in their bed, a gunshot she certainly would have heard go off in their house while she was waiting up for their son to get home that night. The gun that, by the way, was Bill's stolen gun. The ballistics are back and there is no question. Bill was murdered with his own gun, a gun that had no prints on it and no DNA on it, almost as if someone was wearing a glove when they fired it. You know, like the glove that tested positive for gunshot residue that was found underneath Anne's seemingly freshly bleached clothes in her own hamper. Police bring her down to the station and flat out tell her, we know you killed your husband. There were no signs of forced entry, the glove that tested positive for gunshot residue, the missing holster, the missing ammunition, and the missing gun that was used to kill Bill were all found still inside the house, a gun that she would have had full access to. And they knew she hadn't spoken to Bill before she left with her son that morning because Bill would have been dead for at least eight hours at that point. Faced with this reality in the footage of her interrogation shown on Sins and Secrets, investigators let her know that she's being charged with the intentional homicide of her husband. And Homegirl decides that now was a good time to hide behind her chair and cry, I'm not that tough. Then asks them if they have to take her into custody, that they can just release her into the custody of someone else and tells them, you don't know me. Girl knows a whole lot about personal recognizance for someone who's never been in trouble before. 
Now, it looks like she actually might have bonded out at some point, even though it's not specifically reported on, because in June of 2008, in what feels like the quickest charge to trial ever, one of the first questions Anne was asked in court was if she had a boyfriend. And according to the Revali Republic, she did. She said she'd met him the previous November at one of her son's sporting events. So just to be clear, three months after being charged with the murder of her husband, who she claims to be devastated by the death of, Olan is out at teenage sporting events picking up men. The trial itself was pretty damning. When investigators started suspecting Anne might have had something to do with her husband's murder, they seized her personal laptop, which was password protected, by the way, along with her work computer. And according to the Revali public, when analyzing Anne's work computer, forensic techs found that someone had searched for an article out of California that detailed a mental defense, i.e. an insanity plea. There were also searches for divorce, planning a divorce, and Barbara Miller. Now, the defense argued that anyone could have searched for those things, considering it was her work computer, but I think you're going to be hard-pressed to find one of Anne's co-workers googling the Arkansas mistress of her now-murdered husband. And that defense only went so far because her personal password-protected laptop was so much worse. According to the outlet, the most frequently searched phrases on her personal laptop were how to kill someone, how to put someone to sleep, how to make a sleeping formula, household poisons, homemade poisons, untraceable poisons, how to poison someone, and how to poison someone and get away with it. I describe them as the most frequently searched phrases because they were searched several times. There were 56 of them in total. But Anne's defense claimed that these searches were done by Bill, trying to argue that he was searching for ways to commit suicide, according to that document on Legal.com. Sure, Bill was Googling how to poison someone and get away with it because he wanted to get away with his own suicide. Makes total sense when you put it that way. The last sentence was a lie. If her search history wasn't suspicious enough, what they found on her computers next brings the fucketh upness of this case to a whole new level. According to that legal.com case document, that freak of arc email account was created in 2005, the year of the affair, using none other than Anne's work computer. And those emails from that account were sent from her personal password protected laptop. So yeah, the defense is up a chocolate creek without a popsicle stick, and if you thought it was impossible to use a Shrek reference in a true crime podcast, you'd be wrong. Those letters that had come in, seemingly from Barbara, hadn't actually come from her at all. Legal.com reports that police were able to duplicate the Arkansas postmarks on the envelopes of the letters by mailing a stamped letter to the postmaster in Fort Smith, Arkansas. They found two envelopes, one sealed and one not, both postmarked and ready to use while searching Ann and Bill's garage. For good measure, they tested the seal of one of the previously opened envelopes that had come more than a year prior. It included a letter where Barbara detailed a barbecue her and Bill were having to celebrate their relationship. The DNA from the spit used to lick it came back to one person and one person only, Anne Stout. Those hang-up phone calls? Yeah, those were traced back to a payphone in the hallway of the building that Anne worked at. 
Anne had been the one harassing herself and her husband for years, posing as his high school sweetheart, whom he'd had a weekend fling with in the darkest days of their marriage. She created and perpetuated her own marital turmoil for years, including her sons in the path of her destruction. Anne created the idea that Barbara was pregnant with Bill's baby. Anne created the idea that Barbara was coming to kick her to the curb. Anne is the one who instilled the fear in the family that someone was after them. If Bill had ever called Barbara to ask her to stop contacting him, maybe he would have found out that none of this was her. Anne, posing as Barbara, terrorized Bill for years after his affair, all the while to the rest of the world, pretending to bond with him over the harassment that she was ultimately responsible for. After getting through the computer phase of Anne's trial, which took a hot minute, they moved on to the physical evidence, starting with that glove. We knew that the outside had tested positive for gunshot residue, but the DNA results from the inside were in, and it was a match for, as I think we could all have guessed at this point, Anne. Anne left behind her own DNA inside of the glove, hidden beneath a pile of her own freshly bleached clothes, found alongside the holster of the weapon used to kill Bill, the weapon that was ultimately found in their garage in his own saddlebag. It's not looking real good for her, but it didn't stop her defense from giving it a real college try. According to IMDb, the defense argues that if Anne was clever enough to pretend to be Barbara for all that time and commit to doing it so flawlessly, why would she be so careless as to leave behind a glove with her own DNA on the inside? And the argument goes down as one of the worst arguments ever heard in a trial. Anne wasn't some criminal mastermind. She used her own work computer and laptop to harass her husband and search for different ways to kill him, and then left her own DNA on the seal of the envelopes containing the letters she wanted everyone to believe was coming from her husband's mistress. Bill had simply trusted Anne enough to not suspect that she, of all people, was capable of being behind this 170-something step plan to make his life miserable before taking it from him. Anne played a good game. A lot of people thought they'd arrested the wrong person in the beginning. I mean, Homegirl was thorough enough to get envelopes postmarked from another state before sending letters claiming to be Bill's long-lost mistress, and she did this shit for years. Hell, she stole a gun almost two weeks before actually using it just to make sure the whole egging and shitting of the truck seemed believable enough. Anne was so diabolical that no one ever questioned a thing until the police got involved. And, well, she was clearly a homicidal dumbass, and they made sure everyone knew it. To the outside world, Anne just seemed like this perfect wife who'd been cheated on but stood by her man and endured what they viewed as years of stalking and harassment. Meanwhile, it was her all along. Bill's murder wasn't in the heat of the moment. It wasn't right after she found out he'd cheated on her. They hadn't gotten into an argument. No, Anne welcomed him home from work with open arms, cooked him a nice dinner, had sex with him, and when he fell asleep, she pulled out the gun she'd stolen days prior and shot him in the head with it. Then she walked out of the room, did some laundry, waited for her son to get home, acted like nothing was wrong, and then we can only assume that she went to bed right next to Bill's dead body. 
only to wake up early the next morning to get breakfast and run errands with her son for six hours while Bill laid still dead in their bed, calling him multiple times, pretending to want to know what he wanted from Costco and letting his friend know that he wasn't feeling well and wouldn't be riding with him that day. Anne's trial took three weeks to get through, but it only took the jury six hours to find her guilty of the intentional homicide of her husband and the father of her children, Bill Stout. Her sentencing hearing was held three months later, and the Revali Republic was there to cover it. They reported that Anne, maintaining her innocence, pled with the judge that her husband was her best friend. Somehow, this is supposed to make what she did less appalling. Her and Bill's own son got up and spoke and said, This hearing is for justice for my father. When I think of justice for him, I don't see that as his grandchildren getting to know their grandmother by putting their hand against a piece of bulletproof glass. And honestly, this makes me feel really sad for him. He didn't just lose his dad to a meticulously planned out murder. He also lost his mom in the process. But this was the life that Anne chose for her son. This is the life that Anne chose for her grandchildren. Ultimately, Anne Stout was sentenced to life in prison, but with the possibility of parole. Her attorney made sure to announce that they planned to appeal, and the outlet reports that Anne had the balls to ask the judge if she could stay out of jail in the meantime, you know, to be with her family and help them recover from the loss of their father, literally telling him to allow our family the seeds of hope. Hope? You harassed your husband for years, making your family think they were in danger, and then murdered him. And now you're queening yourself the Santa of hope? Like somehow you, of all people, can deliver anything other than manipulation and devastation to your entire family. This judge was my favorite, and as quoted in the Revali Republic's piece, told her, Your children will be deprived of your company. It's not because you've been convicted of the crime. It's because you committed the crime. And I personally want to go back in time and give this judge a mic just so we can drop it right at this very moment. Anne wound up appealing twice and losing twice. She's currently living out her life sentence, maintaining her innocence in her Can I Speak to a Manager haircut at the Montana Women's Prison and is eligible for parole in 2038. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Bill's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about the mind-blowing manipulation that is this case. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. 